guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Podcast Nation, we got a special episode talking about the urgency of normal. Man, (laughs) this thing has been one of the best and one of the worst things that have entered my life in terms of trying to advocate for our kids and bringing them back to a normal existence. And for this reason, we brought Dr. Lucy McBride, Harvard grad, John Hopkins internist that has been a huge advocate for trying to get our kids back to normal life. One of the co-founders of urgency of normal. And we're going to talk about, you know, her journey throughout COVID, what she's seen, the impact on mental health. We also talk about what possessed her to be part of this team. To, in terms of urgency and normal and what that has meant and the change that she's seen as a result of advocating for the kids. So we're going to jump onto that right away. Before we do, I got to tell you about Solving Wellness. Man, we're seeing that high level of burnout. Go to solvingwellness.com. We're trying to change that boogie, trying to address clinician burnout through online workouts, yoga classes, mindful meditation, nutrition tips, productivity tips, all in one community, supporting each other songwellness.com check it out anyway without further ado let's jump into it dr lucy mcbride quadcast nation listen we are ready to go with dr lucy mcbride the one and only you may have seen her on the twitter sphere on ig but more importantly on cnn and pbs soon i'm telling you she's helping change the landscape and the discussion in North America when it comes to COVID response. So Lucy, welcome to the Quadcast. Quadro, I, 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 there's no place I'd rather be than right here. Oh man, I'm so, I, like, you, I don't know if I could fully describe how exciting it was that connected with Lucy. She, she contacted me on social media talking about this toolkit, which we'll get into. Um, and it's life has changed ever since. And it's been so exciting. But first, Lucy, you've been very vocal and, and and a huge advocate in terms of 
a balance in our COVID response, you know, through your newsletters, through Twitter, through your, your mainstream media, what was driving it? What got you that, that gave you the juice to get involved? I love that question. Thank you. So I have, so I'm a practicing internal medicine doctor. I, I see patients every day. Um, I've just finished with my morning session and I've always been interested in the whole person, the, the sort of human condition, patient's experience of illness beyond the illness itself. Um, and I've always believed that mental and physical health are inseparable. We all have mental health. It's relevant to our whole health. And it informs our everyday behaviors, decisions, choices. You know, health to me is not just about the split second you're sitting in my office for your annual checkup. Health is about the 364 days a year you're not in my office or in your primary care doctor's office, if you're lucky enough to even have a doctor at all. So I've always been a writer as well. I love writing. I was a journaler. Like when I was a kid, I, I kept a journal with like <laughs> writing down my secrets. I think my mom read my journal once nope. and it was just nope. over after that. Just, oh, <laughs> the worst. But anyway, um, so when the pandemic hit March, 2020, right? Remember those hair on fire days, right? Where we're, you know, yep you know, stockpiling toilet paper and wiping down gallons of milk. My patients were calling. I couldn't pick the phone up fast enough to answer all the questions. And they were very similar. So I started writing a newsletter to kind of answer these questions like, you know, what to do, where to get a test, you know, what is that cough? Trying to help kind of herd all of my, my sheep, mm. <laughs> if you will. Mm. And then the, 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 the newsletter kind of caught on and I wrote every day for 90 days. And then I started writing twice a week and now it's once a week. And now I'm reaching almost 20,000 people a week. My goal, I'm apolitical. I'm not tied to any ideology. It's basically trying to cut through the noise of all the news and information that's coming at us like water out of a fire hydrant, mm. give people real time fact-based information with a little bit of dumb humor. Like I talk about myself, I talk about my kids, I talk about dumb stuff that I do that my kids make fun of me about <laughs> because I'm a real person too. Like I'm struggling in my own way. My husband had COVID in November, 2020 before the vaccines. Um, you know, it's been hard on me, not harder than other people, I don't think, but I'm trying to basically humanize medicine and bring it to people so they can understand the nuances of the conversation. Yes. And so that's how I got started. And, and there's no more clear evidence of mental health not being woven into the conversation as it should, as it is in the dialogue about schools and children. And, and I see teenagers as, as patients. I have three teenagers myself. So so the school reopening issue has really, to me, been a been a been a been a, a moment to really really dig dig deep and think about how we can prioritize mental health and consider health as more than just the absence of COVID nineteen. Yes, yes, you hear this, folks? Holistic approach. Yeah, holistic. Because you've heard me say this a million times. We've been so myopic in our vision in terms of like how is our policies, how are our decisions going to affect other factors of health. And as Lucy was mentioning, if you are going to treat the person, you're going to treat them, address their health. You can't ignore the other sectors. You can't ignore their psychological, spiritual, their mental uh, components of health. And so, uh, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of what you're, you're throwing down Lucy. Um, but to get into some of the themes that you were addressing in terms of your newsletter or, or some of the stuff that you were seeing, like what's kind of the, you know, the, the, the themes in terms of maybe lack of nuance that you were seeing or common things that came up. 
so let's think about like right now what i'm seeing is i mean i've seen i've seen a lot of fear and anxiety since the beginning of the pandemic um and 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 that's not to dismiss people's fear or anxiety it's to recognize that that anxiety is normal when we are faced with a ubiquitous and potentially lethal threat like SARS-CoV-2 um but i'm also seeing that for many people fear is overtaking sometimes their rational thought and i'm not talking about people being you know i'm talking about people at their most vulnerable when they feel out of control when their lives have been turned upside down, their routines thrown out the window, their kids are suffering, they're caring for older parents, they're managing their everyday lives in a pandemic. The fear and anxiety have, have in some patients overtaken what might be more rational thought. And then you have these narratives in various places, including some of the media that, for example, the vaccines don't protect you as well as we thought. I think what I'm seeing right now in the in the sort of fear bucket is this worry that the vaccines don't work as well as we promised. Now, I, I understand that because we thought pre-Omicron that the vaccines were really good at reducing transmission as well as reducing your risk for death and severe disease. Well, that calculation has changed. Omicron is so transmissible that we're seeing tons of breakthrough infections. But we also know, based on real-world data, that the vaccines continue to do an excellent job protecting against the endpoints we care most about. They protect us from death and hospitalization. So I think the mistake that has been made in the messaging in the public health arena and then in the media is that all these breakthrough infections mean the vaccines don't work. So I'm seeing that kind of revving the emotional engines of people's anxiety such that they are afraid to start living their normal lives because they don't know what to make of the vaccine and they don't feel protected anymore. So I spent a lot of time kind of presenting data, explaining how safe they are, and also explaining in terms of nuance that COVID is here to stay. It's not going away. And we have to balance the risk of the virus against the, the risk of not engaging in normal life to the extent people want to. A hundred percent. And, you know, I, I think one of the, um, aspects that have been lost in all of this is uh, risk assessment. Like, actually, I'll touch on this in a second, but also just that whole, um, that the, the miss, I don't want to say it's misinformation. The, I think the, our inability to explain the, the, the benefits of vaccination really to say like, it's all about preventing you from being in the hospital. It really is like, remember when back in the day when the, the vaccines first came out and they were showing, you know, Moderna 90, 90, I can't remember the numbers, but 93%, uh, uh, Pfizer, 89% or what right, have you. And people right. were like shopping for like, which vaccine they were going to receive. Like, it, like that was if you think about it, how wild that was during a, in a pandemic where people are trying to choose which one based on the way we were presenting the data, you know? And so, yeah, I think this is one of the things that, um, you know, when, when you get to have these conversations or talk in a bit of a nuanced way, people really connected to that, like to say, okay, that is clear now. It's like the reason we're doing this is to prevent myself or grandma from landing in an intensive care unit in hospital or dying from COVID. So, yeah. Right. I mean, we're clearly defining our goals and then also being transparent about the shifting conditions. 
and not kind of doubling down on a, on, on a, on a narrative that maybe once was right, but no longer holds. I mean, you know, people are smart and smarter than I think we give them credit. My job is in a way a whole lot easier quadro as I, I talk to people one at a time. So, you know, when you're messaging a wide public who in the U S at least, you know, half, or you have the extreme on, on this side saying, you know, COVID is a hoax and the vaccines are, you know, dangerous. And then you have on the other side, you know, vaccinated boost and wear an N95, you know, in perpetuity, it's hard to message that entire country. But I do think in general, you know, that it's that that people that the general that the general public is pretty smart and they can smell fear in public health officials. They can smell kind of covering up of even with the best intentions, but just just sort of a not a, a lack of transparency. And the same thing is true in my office, seeing patients one at a time. Like my job mm-hmm. when I'm delivering bad news, for example, with a patient, is not to sugarcoat it or you know doctor it up no pun intended, and say like, oh, it's going to be fine. It's rather to give people the hard truth, but also not try to predict the future and to give them hope when hope is rooted in scientific evidence. If there's no hope, then of course that's not good. But when, there's always hope, right? Hope is hope is healthy. And I think what you and I have been accused of and some of our colleagues is is being overly optimistic when I don't consider myself an optimist as much as I am a realist, and there's reason for optimism. There's also reason for pessimism. It just depends on how what what issue we're talking about, and and are we talking about it in a sophisticated, complex way? Because these are not simple issues. But, but it's it's what you get got to, Lucy. It's the transparency where, where I think is where we give. Like I think, I think yeah. there's been a too much of a maternalistic or paternalistic approach in when it comes to COVID. Because as, as you said, if people if you lose their trust by trying to hammer home a point that later on is not factual, when you need them to step up, when you need them to, for them to do their part, what's the likelihood are they going to do it now that you, that you've, you've fooled me once, you know what I'm saying? Like being transparent would, is yes. so powerful to tell people, this is what we think we were wrong about this, but this is what we think moving forward. This is what we all collectively need to do. And, and, at the same time, in my opinion, there had to be a hope. There always has to be hope. You have to give people the 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 signal like doing this will get us to 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 where we need to be. Because I'll tell you, the fear based not just fear based messaging, but also fear based decision making, as you alluded to, look, has been out be of control. Of, it's been insane. But when we're forming policies around fear and we're forming a narrative that is then kind of causing the public to marinate in fear, or at least half the public, then then we make decisions that are rooted in fear and anxiety. And, and so I think transparency is key, meeting people where they are, right? So if I have a patient, for example, who needs to quit alcohol, right? If they have an addiction, or they need to leave an unhealthy relationship, for example, or they have some other behavioral change they need to, to make. You know, my job isn't to be absolutist and say, or nor is it to shame them and say, you know, geez, you really are, you know, so like sort of my job isn't to say, you know, to shame the person and say, look, you really got to quit drinking because you're a bad person. And, you know, this is just pathetic. It's to say, look, the alcohol is interfering with your mental health, your physical health, your relationships. 
let's think about a way to meet you where you are right now to support and structure a, a path to sobriety. You know, and that doesn't happen overnight. It, it, it requires trust and transparency, and it requires a relationship. And that's what, what I think is 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 lacking right now in the communications from our public health leadership in the U.S. is is transparency and trust of the public. Now, there are people we can't trust, but I don't know. I I think most people kind of yep. get it. Like most people don't want to kill their neighbor. By getting COVID and transmitting it, I mean, most people don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, and so what we need to do, and I do this in my office with mm-hmm. patients, is arm patients with the tools they need to mitigate the risks they face every day in their lives, whether it's COVID-19 or the risk of the restrictions themselves on their mental health. And, you know, it's a it's a tough threading of the needle, but that's ultimately medicine's job, right? That's a, that's a, I mean... This is our job. And and I think when I when I I'm sure this has happened to you, when I look at some of the times where you've dealt with vaccine hesitant folk, it's been having that nuanced, yeah. balanced conversation. And it's about listening. It's about listening it too. Works. Why did I interrupt it you? Changes. Right? Like, it's about, it, 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 it's about listening, right? It's about listening. No, like no, no, no. It's I don't all about you. someone to take a vaccine. I have a number of patients who are, are vaccine hesitant still. And I don't, I don't change hearts and minds by shaming them or by ramrodding, you know, more facts or data because they know the facts and the data at this point, they, they're my patients, but it's about listening and understanding and sometimes it works and sometimes it just doesn't. Yeah. And it, it's been surprising though. I don't know if you felt this about how much, and I think it's driven by fear, but how much shaming there is happening with, with, with this, like even you know, whether they're patients, whether it's on social media, like it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And I feel like we know better. We've known this through the AIDS epidemic. Um, we know this through, you know, behavioral change, like shame doesn't work. Like we need to meet people at their level, uh, come from an authentic place, but man, there's a, a lot of shaming, like shaming, it seems to be a, a major theme when it comes to vaccination status. Yeah, I think shaming, it doesn't motivate people. It just makes people feel ashamed. Just like fear doesn't motivate people. It just makes them feel afraid. And then when we're afraid, we tend to make decisions that we wouldn't otherwise make. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's like it's like raising kids, right? Like you're a father, I'm a mother of three teenagers. Like if I, like my kids are very different in terms of their personalities, which is a whole lot of fun. Um, but like, if I told my son who's 20 and in college, like you can never have a drink before you're 21. You can never, you know, be in a relationship until, or like a sexual relationship until you're married and you can, you know, like he would have run away by this point. Now I'm not condoning underage drinking. I am not condoning reckless relationships, but the fact that I'm meeting him where he is means that we have a rapport and we talk about this stuff. He tells me more stuff than I kind of want to know. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, all right, You're most. you know what? We're good. We're good. But I mean, the point is like, you have to create that space. And I think that, I think that trust, transparency, honesty, and humility are in short supply right now. Yeah. And I'm not God's gift to it. Just ask my kids. Um, they, you know, I, I, I tell them what they need to know and what, what I think they should need to need to do all the time. But, you know, I got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Yeah. 
Exactly. No, that's uh, that's the art of parenting for sure. Or even yeah. even even within medicine, too. It's true. Absolutely. So we'd be remiss not to talk about the toolkit. Urgency of normal. Urgency okay. of normal. What got, what got us connected and at some point felt like the world was coming down. But let's start with this. What got you what got you engaged in this? What What, what made you want to sign the documents, be part of the toolkit, what drove that? So like you, Quadro, I've been watching, I've had my finger on the pulse of the data. I mean, so obsessively, it's like, it's like nuts for two and a half years, or sorry, not two and a half years, 22 months. Um, So I've had my finger on the pulse of the data. I've been watching, you know, the ebb and flow of this virus and, and the absence of, 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 in my opinion, appropriate shifting of mitigations um, and watching people lose trust in our public health institutions. I see that after 22 months of accumulated data, how low risk healthy kids are for severe outcomes from COVID-19 and right now how significantly restricted they are in their daily lives at school. And then you watch the Surgeon General, the American Academy of Pediatrics come out with a mental health warning. It's a mental health emergency for teens and, and children. And then I see my patients. I don't see children. I see um, adolescents though. I see patients age 15 to 92 is my oldest patient. And you know these kids are vaccinated, at least in my, in my practice. Um, it's a high vaccination rate. And they are suffering from Anxiety, depression, substance use, disordered eating, loneliness, social isolation, all of these symptoms that don't get captured in a, on a PCR test or any metric. Um, this is the unmeasurable suffering that is a result of two years of living in a pandemic. And I'm not saying it's all because of a mask. I'm not saying it's all because of any one particular thing. I think it's just loss of, loss of normalcy. Mm. And so when my friends, Monica Gandhi and Tracy Hogue, Scott Balsitas approached me and said, would you be interested in helping us form this group of citizen doctors, scientists who are apolitical, just trying to get the facts out into the hands of policymakers at schools? Um, I said, absolutely. And we, and then you joined us, thank God, and other amazing colleagues to basically put together on slides the data on childhood uh, risk for COVID-19 masking data or the absence thereof that that masks do much for reducing the spread of COVID in schools and the evidence of harms of masks and restrictions. Um, and, and, and basically not to tell schools what to do, but to give them sort of the data to inform decisions and balance risks at this watershed moment when Omicron is, is falling fast in various parts of our country and where kids are struggling and unfortunately still restricted um, in many, many ways. And it's been a fascinating journey, if you will, as you well know. I don't need to tell you. It's been hard. Oh, my goodness. But uh, we could talk about the struggles in a second. But, I mean, that, the reasons you got behind it, same with me. Like, it's hard not to get behind a, yeah. an academic, evidence-based presentation on, 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 on some of the policies that we've put into our kids. And... Let me tell you something, folks, you guys know this, but like the weight that our kids have had to bear on this pandemic is, I'm sorry, but it's insane when you think about it. When you look at their risk of uh, severe outcomes and what they've had to to try and overcome, 
Like when I look at, for example, your, your eldest child having to be not just double vaccinated, triple vaxxed and COVID recovered. COVID recovered. And are, are they doing in-person school or is it, a, is it, uh, they just went back late in person, second semester, but they're banned from going into this town and banned from any social activities. And it's banned a from going into back. the town. What does that mean? Yeah, banned from, like mean, to, they can only go to the room and then to pick up food and box food for meals. Um, and it's a 99% vaxxed campus. It's a mandated vax. Yeah, and so you know, look, he—he's, you know, I, I feel less bad for him than I do for, you know, a lot of other children who are disadvantaged and in marginalized populations. I, I do, um, but regardless of your lived experience, if you're a child and you're and you're deprived of normal school, and normal school is basically what you're supposed to be doing is your life, right? Then yes. that's, that's that's not healthy. Like I think you know the World Health Organization's you know, constitution says that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of infirmity. And, you know, no one will ever be in a perfect state of, you know, health, mental, physical, economic, occupational, you know, serenity. But I, I think that the, the, the urgency of getting kids back to normal is there and it can be done without losing sight of the need to continue, continue to protect our most vulnerable populations. And that's older patients and unvaccinated patients. Yeah. I, I think this was uh, such a good point. Like I, I think, you know, when you factor all these things, like Omicron's change every, like change the landscape significantly when you look at, you know, risk of transmission and, and severity of disease um, you consider the fact that, uh, you know, we're so well vaccinated, a lot of like, at least in Canada, most a lot of places, you know, like we have to factor in like the the interventions with the risk. And I, I just think that level of nuance has, has been lacking. And once again, you you can't think of the interventions of being benign, like having a, a, my like I have a three year old, three and a half, having him masked as he's trying to you know, read faces to develop his linguistic skills. Like, I, I don't think that's benign. You know what I'm saying? It's and, you know, and like, I think there's more and more, if I'm not mistaken, Lucy, there's more and more data implying that it, this is impacting some of the, our use ability to learn. Yeah. And remember that the world health organization has never recommended masks for children under five. Yeah. Yet our American Academy of Pediatric recommends masking children age two and up. So, you know, therein lies, you know, the, 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 the evidence of the absence of data on what's the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. Right. The fact that two expert groups differ mm-hmm. doesn't mean they're anti-science doesn't mean they're anti-child. It just means that there's, there's, there isn't a consensus Mm-hmm. And it's our job as scientists who are not tied to a political party, not tied to an ideology, not being funded by anything except our own, you know, <laughs> sweat and, and blood and tears um, to to really help people have the facts or the absence of data. You know, in medicine, like I don't need to tell you, but like our first goal is do no harm. That's our oath. Mm-hmm. And the norm is to see faces for children to see faces. So the burden of proof needs to be on the intervention and there's just no proof. There's no good, clean, or even good data at all to show that masking children in schools reduces transmission 
and then in a meaningful way to make it worth a mandate when kids can mask if they want to lifting a mandate doesn't mean you can't mask it means you can you can take you can take a, a personal um risk calculation and decide if you want to mask if you need to but the best thing to do is get vaccinated yeah and and like that's the that's the one thing that came across in the toolkit that I was I was really pleased to see is really knowing that the power is within yourself. Like if you want to protect yourself, you want to protect your child, or, or you're a teacher that wants to be protected, make sure you're vaccinated. You could get a well-formed fitted mask, a K95, whatever. Like you could you have that power to protect yourself, and the status of the kids. Is not as important as 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 what you've done for yourself. Like I mean, if you think about it from practical terms, when we go and see COVID patients, I walk into a room with COVID patient. They're not wearing a mask or anything. They're they're just on oxygen. They're on, whether they're on a ventilator or not. But like they're they they they're not wearing a mask. Like and I I know I how to protect myself. And I we've been protecting ourselves effectively throughout this pandemic. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But, yeah, and and we know that kids. You know, there's 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 no shortage of data to show that kids in general transmit the virus less than adults do. Yeah. So we've seen that in school transmission, when it happens, because of course it will happen, it's happening everywhere, and so schools are you know can be can be places where there is transmission. It's typically adult to child, not mm-hmm. child to adult. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it possible for a child to transmit to an adult? Absolutely, and that's why the adults should be vaccinated, and that's why they should be boosted, um, particularly if they're older or at high risk. But again, you know, based on the current CDC data, um, the risk of severe disease from COVID once you've been vaccinated and boosted as an adult is, is really tiny. Yeah. Um, but, but that's also what I do in my day job is, you know, my, my liver transplant patients, um, I have two who, who, who had liver transplants in the past and are on heavy immune suppressants, you know, those patients will need to be more careful particularly when prevalence locally is high, but they've had to be careful before COVID as well. Mm -hmm. And one of them in particular is I have her mask in like the grocery store during flu season. And we always have, because I don't want her to end up in your ICU, Mm -hmm. even though the likelihood is low when you've been vaccinated against COVID and you've been vaccinated against the flu. Yeah. And it's once again, knowing your own risk and we should emphasize too, one of the, the things that, uh, you know, to put it in context when it comes to kids, I, I always put this, uh, I always frame it this way. Like the risk of a kid dying, like you driving your kid to the grocery store, do you driving your kid to Chuck E. Cheese? I don't know why I chose Chuck E. Cheese, but oh, just, yeah, Chuck E. Cheese, that's a, a old favorite back in our day. Yeah, yeah, but old school, old school. Oh, yeah. Um, that with poses- wine, with wine. You remember you could have wine at like 11 a.m. <laughs> it came out of the wall. <laughs> Amen. Amen poses a higher risk than them dying of COVID, like a healthy right. kid. You know what I mean? Right. So like, what, once again, the whatever intervention we choose to put on the, our children's needs to reflect the risk. And, right. um, and so, right. yeah. It's, it's calibrating the risk to the actual facts, mm-hmm. given the situation we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are always going to be people who are on one side or the other of the bell curve. There are people who are, there are kids who have had, for example, like, two shots and they had COVID. So they're really like almost like triple immune. And then there are kids who haven't had the vaccine and they're at higher risk because they have obesity or they have an underlying condition or they live with a higher risk person. Mm -hmm. Um, But those people need to take precautions or the the person who's at higher risk 
need to take extra precautions. They need to get vaccinated. They need to make sure their family members are vaccinated. And maybe that child wants to wear a mask in school. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, we also have to recognize that it's at the end of the day, it comes down to personal risk tolerance. And that's, that's what I'm working on with my patients is, is not to like be risky. I mean, I'm a pretty risk averse person. Like, I don't want to like my job is to help people reduce harm and reduce suffering, Mm -hmm. but we also can't live in a bubble. We have to live, we have to face risk every day from swimming in a pool, driving a car, being in a relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, eating American food, all of that has risk. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I couldn't put it any better, Lucy. Um, And when, when we look at the urgency of normal and, and some of the, the backlash that has happened, but so, I got to speak to this a little bit. It's been insane. It's been insane. Yeah. Like think about what we're trying to do. We'll all have the same interest at heart at doing what's best for our kids. Okay. And for people to start attacking families, your credibility, your, uh, your credentials, all this stuff based on just trying to provide people with evidence-based approach to some of these issues. It's been insane. It's been Absolutely insane. So I guess my question, if this is really maybe a question or comment, like what has been your strength for this? Like what, like, what do you, where you've gone to, to try and deal with this hate speak and such? I want to ask you the same thing, Quadro, because, because I know you faced unique challenges there too. I mean, it's been rough. I mean, but at the end of the day, and I talk to, I talk to people all the time. One of the things that I, I'm a big connection person. Like I, I talk to my pediatrician friends. I talk to my pediatric psychiatry friends. I talk to my friend who works, well, and one of our co-authors works in the most underprivileged communities as a pediatric psychiatrist in Baltimore. I talk about what's happening in the world and what we're seeing. And I try to, I try to check my biases because we all have them. Um, mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it always came down to the facts, like we're just, we're, we're presenting facts. Um, we're presenting facts and, and you can always put more facts in the toolkit. You can always put more, I mean, there's more data coming out every day. You can always put more facts. Um, but, and, 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 and the, just to comment on the data about mental health, like one of the main challenges in the world of mental health is that it's very hard to quantify suffering that's emotional suffering. It's hard to quantify. And like suicide rates don't begin to capture the invisible suffering that, that kids are experiencing. Um, but at the end of the day, what has given me strength is talking to my colleagues and people who actually disagree with me on a lot of these points. Um, because I always, I want to bounce my ideas off of people who don't necessarily agree with me. Um, and then realizing that, you know, our, our, the, the goals are pretty darn, I mean, they're, they're altruistic. It's like, not like I'm getting paid for this. You're not getting paid for this. There's no, you know, I have no political agenda. And then, and then at the end of the day, just believing in what we're doing and believing in the group. And, you know, I've also done a lot of therapy to help manage, you know, seeing patients every day for 20 years, you know, these are intimate relationships and precious relationships that are founded on trust and mutual respect. And, not just because I'm a doctor, but because I'm a human being, I've worked in therapy on, you know, establishing appropriate boundaries, right? Like not letting someone's emotional dysregulation, like bite me in the butt because that's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for me. So 
I don't know, I've sort of drawn on a lot of like those, those tools to manage this hard time. And ultimately I think we'll be, you know, I think, I think we're, 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 we're doing the right thing, Quadra. We're doing the right thing. We're advocating for children. We're advocating for balancing their mental health, their social health and their physical health. I mean, it's hard to argue with that mission. That's, that's exactly it. It's, it's when you look at a bird's eye view, what we're trying to accomplish like it just it's hard to not want to step up and for me the strength has come from my family i must say like you know hey you know there's people trying to cancel us right now uh, hey there's people trying to attack your uh, uh stuff on social media and saying like you are on the right path like here i hear mama's mommy's voice uh kathy's voice saying you're on the right path you're gonna be you guys are gonna be on the right side of history right keep hustling right. keep pushing and I mean, I know. I remember at the beginning when we were, people were trying to like uh, cancel us hard, and I remember thinking, like, you know, these are what bullies do. And what? what yeah. How do you respond to bullies? You you don't cower. Yeah. You step. You don't cower, and and you 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 stay with the facts, and you stay above. Like when people start doing character character attacks or personal smears, I mean that's, I mean that's just evidence of either they have a a. a personality problem or they just don't have the data to back back them up. I mean, as I said, I've been talking with people for the last two weeks since this toolkit came out who who disagree with the with the tech. Like they would like, for you example, the tech? sorry, dis, they disagree with the tech, like the, the the framing of the argument. They would like to see masks tied to a certain metric. Or they would like to wait until, you know, every child has been vaccinated in this country or something like that, or, or a certain percentage. Mm -hmm. And all of those arguments are valid. Like I, if you know, I know, I, I don't know everything. Like I asked my children again, like they will tell you, I don't know everything. They'll tell me I don't know anything sometimes. <laughs> um, but, but I, but I do think it's at some point someone had to open this conversation and I still stand by our argument that because the, the, the data on masking is weak because kids are suffering from myriad threats to their health and well-being beyond COVID-19 and because vaccines are widely available and adults can protect themselves, that this is the time to lift masks and we don't need to tie them to any particular metric. Um, but people are welcome to disagree. And that I think is part of the conversation and part of the part of what we need to do better and not silence voices, but rather elevate them and have civil discourse because these are very, very complicated issues. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, it's like anyone on this, group or any group that's claiming to have all the answers or to be certain in their like hundred percent certain on their calls. Like, you know, that's a problem, you know, and this is what it's so beautiful is that feedback is welcome. Like yeah, this is what, this is what, and for those that are listening, this is a norm in science. This is what <laughs> drives me crazy. It's like, yes, I want to know where my holes are, where are the holes in the argument. And, and this way we can aim to get a, a, a better refined um, solution. And so yeah. this is because we've lost that throughout the pandemic. We've lost it from day zero. You know, when you couldn't even mention the world, uh, uh, you couldn't use words like herd immunity or you couldn't use words like natural infection. You couldn't talk about the uh, collateral damage of lockdowns. You, you like being anti-lockdown was a uh, was a uh, could get you canceled. Like these are the kind of environment 
that we've harbored over the last two years. And it needs to change. And I'm, I'm with Lucy here when to create the change, you need to rise up. You need to be an example. You need to be like, this is how I'm going to carry myself during, uh, despite you calling names and going personal attacks, you know, we are about the data. We are about the info at hand. It's not about personal attacks. I'm not going to chastise, uh, you know, a paper or something you did three years ago. It's what you're telling me. And if it's not, if there's good foundation for it, I'll t- we'll take it into account. If there's nothing there, we move on. This is the way science right. should be. Right. It's iterative. It's collaborative. And we welcome feedback. I mean, I, I mean, that's one of the benefits. It's hard to talk about opportunities in a pandemic, but one of the benefits of the pandemic for me personally is being part of the conversation with, I mean, so many incredible minds across the country. I, you know, I went to Harvard Medical School. I trained at Johns Hopkins and I reconnected with so many of my, because I'm in private practice in DC. Mm-hmm. And my partners here, a lot, of, a lot of them are Hopkins folks and they're, you know, I bounce things off of them all the time. We show each other, you know, people's weird rashes and bounce, but it, but it's been nice to expand that conversation nationally and then internationally Um, because these are hard problems to answer and solve and they definitely are not captured in a tweet even a twitter thread so you know i will be in a twitter you know conversation to use a euphemism for a minute with somebody who disagrees with me because i i welcome i welcome the dialogue but at some point if it becomes sort of like a the tit for tat or like becomes really personal, then I just say, Hey, just give me a call and I direct message them. And that's what I've been doing on the phone on the weekends is talking to people who disagree with me. And it's, I've learned a lot. I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't change my view that we need to think about children's broad human needs and health needs, but I do, I do appreciate other people's point, point of view. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there's one thing I forgot to mention in our uh, the talk about the mass and stuff. Uh, this is a basically a non sequitur, but we also got to remember there are places throughout the world that didn't vaccinate or not vaccinate. They didn't um, mask their, their youngins and like, uh, and they weren't like collapsed. Kids weren't, we weren't seeing a, a bunch of uh, kids hospitalizations as a result. Like we got to remember, like there's case studies out there. There places that we could learn from um, even within my own country, BC, Quebec, they didn't master uh, grade threes, grade fours and above. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, yeah. I, I think, you know, not only uh, is, you know, we look at the data, but also look at what the real world uh, empirical data has shown us uh, exactly. and learn from that. Yeah, if you look at the curves in the U S like the, the, the falling case rates in New York and LA, which would have been, and, and sorry, New York and California, which have been so, they've been masked, they've had a mask mandate. And you compare the, the curves to Florida and Texas, which is not, they've not been masked. They're falling at the same yeah. level. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just one example, but I mean, like Kate, Tracy Beth Hogue, one of our co-authors has done beautiful studies where she compares different school systems in the same area, same state with the same vaccination rates, when you control for the vaccination rates in the community, one school is masked, the other one isn't, you don't see that the one that's not masked is, 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 is on fire. You just mm-hmm. don't. You see about the same transmission rate. So again, and, and we know that like 
even if masks work on on mannequins, and and we know that KN95 masks and N95 masks are are better, and that cloth masks really don't work that well. I mean, the real world application of masking in schools. I mean, your three year old for eight hours a day wearing a cloth mask is probably or she is probably like chewing on it and like yeah. putting it on it on, on your on its head at, at the end of the day. So like, it's just we have to look at the real world, and again, it goes back to like meeting people where they are, like. We have to look at the real world application of science, not just in a lab or on a mannequin and, and, and in these perfect conditions. Um, and again, the real world shows us that, that kids are desperate for us, for adults to speak up. 100%. 100%. Um, two more things I want to hit on. Uh, Please. One was yeah. some, of the, some of the other knocks that the, the, the toolkit got hit up on. So like there was... I've never understood this one, like the the yeah. like the ethnic communities, like the consideration there, the immunocompromise, but specifically in the like the, there was like a hashtag equi- equity of normal. No, no, no. You know, it was it was, it was urgency of equity. Urgency so. of equity. Sorry, uh, and I, I I never I didn't follow. Like what what was the the rationale behind? Well, I tried to I tried to follow, and I've been following a number of people who have very big platforms who are physicians or public health people who are, who are saying that urgency of normal, our toolkit is in opposition to urgency of equity. And I respectfully beg to differ. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. In fact, black and brown communities, as you know, have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. They've also been disproportionately affected by school closures and the, the harms to children. I mean, the amount of learning loss is evidence in the McKinsey put out a report in 2021, December, showing how the educational divide along racial lines, which was there before the pandemic, has only gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Um, look at Flint, Michigan, where schools, public schools are still closed. I mean, these kids are the kids who are facing higher risk of COVID, but they're also facing higher risk of not being fed because schools where some of them get fed. They're facing higher risks of domestic abuse, um, poverty. I mean, School is the great equalizer. Education is where we start to narrow those gaps, health, socioeconomic status. And, you know, the other argument is, because I've heard from people who are saying urgency of equity, that we are, that, that, that being back to normal is inequitable. I, I, would, I also want to say this, to, to those populations who have low vaccination rates, where in the schools, they maybe have 30% of the kids vaccinated or maybe less, and the teachers are not as well vaccinated. I would say, A, please get vaccinated because that's the best thing you can do for yourself. But also those patients and populations or people um, have had COVID-19, they've been exposed. They have some level of, of natural immunity that we're not counting. And you and I both know that natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity is a huge hot-button issue. And I'm not gonna say as someone who sees patients one at a time that one is better or worse because it depends on the person. But let's just acknowledge that natural immunity is not nothing. Yeah. And that when you have a child who's not allowed to go to school because the school is closed, who maybe has been exposed or even had COVID, whose parent is a frontline worker who can't take care of that kid um, because they have to go to work and they maybe had COVID, there's just, there's a point of diminishing returns here on keeping the keeping the schools closed and not allowing the children to connect with their peers, their mentors, their teachers in the classroom normally when the threat of COVID is there, but the threat of other harms is, is also there um, in, in, in a very sharp way. Yeah. I mean, well put, I, even, even as you say this, 
go dive into it more. I still don't see the how this is inequitable, but uh, I I mean I think it was just also signs of desperation. Like I mean I'm I mean obviously been a huge advocate for you know equity uh, you know especially in the BIPOC community and, and yes. locally and this if anything in my mind is uh, a toolkit that's going to equate to more equity. That's, 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 that's the idea is to, is to help narrow the education gap. Um, And so, you know, we know that lockdowns favored the wealthy laptop class of people, right? Yeah. I mean, and I'm not talking about lockdowns right now. No one's talking about lockdowns right now. I'm just saying that there are unintended consequences of these mitigation measures that disproportionately affect people of color. And I just don't see how, I think that urgency of normal is, is urgency of equity. Yeah. No, it's, it's Steph brought that when you guys were on uh, Barry Weiss, he, yeah. I almost, I think I wrote it down. He said something like the, like lockdowns impacted those that needed it the most, the least, and the, those that needed the least, the most, you know, like, uh, you right. know, cause like your essential worker can't stay home. You know, they can't, they, they, you know, is, and so like, this is where you always got to ask yourself, you know, look at the, the, the data to support these decisions. And, but yeah, it's so well put. And look at the total harms, right? Like, because harms are not just about physical health. It's about economic, occupational, emotional health as well. And, and, and it's, it's really about, and when you're taking care of a patient, I mean, you're not just taking care of one organ, right? You're taking Yes, you're a pulmonologist and an and ICU doctor, but you're also looking at their heart, their kidneys, their, you know, you're talking to their family, which is their social support. Like you're yeah. not just, you're not just focusing on one piece of their health. That's not what, that's not, that's not, that's not medicine. And that's not how we should treat populations either. Holistic. That's our job to be holistic. Right. Yes. Amen. Last thing, Lucy, I want you to comment on, so it is February 7th. Holy cow, time is flying. What has been the impact of this advocacy? What is some of the stuff that we have seen move the needle as oh, far yeah. as you're concerned? So the dam is breaking, my friend. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the dam is breaking. You know, it's funny. I talked to Lena Wen, who is a big figure in the United States. Um, she's on CNN every single day, m- multiple times. She writes a column for the Washington Post. And she has a big, big impact and she called me last week wanting to talk about the toolkit. Now that, that's, that's monumental because, you know, two weeks ago we were like considered like fringe people calling yeah. us eugenicists. Mike so Lena like interviewed me for her Washington post column. Um, I'm going to be on PBS today. And one of our co-authors is on MSNBC. Uh, but 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 that's that's not that's not our goal is to be like publicity stars, right? It's really just to get the message out and to see change happen on the ground. And that is also what's happening. So New Jersey today announced lifting mask mandates, not today, but they're they announced today that they're lifting. Wow. And it's just a matter of time before other states are are happening. Um and I think I think what I'm sensing, because a lot of this is political, as you know, is that is that the Democratic states, which the, the 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 bluer states, which is where the strictest lockdowns are and where or the strictest restrictions are and where people are most vaccinated, need data. They need information handed to them that's apolitical to be able to make the changes that they I think perhaps intuitively know people want. 
And so I, it's, it's, it's all happening. I mean, you know, last week too, the uh, Washington Post reported on the need to think about the harms of, of, of mass mandates. And PR did a story, the New York Times did a story, and then our op-ed came out in USA Today. And then another piece that was basically a carbon copy of ours in Time Magazine over the weekend. So it's just a domino effect. But again, I, I think, I don't need, I just wanna say it again, this does not mean the pandemic is over. It doesn't mean the suffering is over. We are still losing 2,500 2, American lives every day. I don't know what the numbers are in Canada, but that cannot be ignored. And, and the thing about medicine is we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can help kids reenter normal and we can protect the vulnerable with vaccinations, boosters, oral antivirals, high-grade masks delivered free to all Americans. We can do, we can do both. We just need to be nuanced about it. Amen, Lucy. This is, I, I mean, let me just tell you how proud I am to be like even associated with the likes of yourself, Scott, oh, Monica, um, Tracy, that are moving the needle, that have been doing some strong advocacy. And like you said, it's so well put. It's You can walk and chew gum at the same time. They're, all these things are not mutually exclusive. That's it. You could, you could address or. the high risk patient populations and free up our children for the, you know, and so like, I just, I can't speak more. I can't even speak. Uh, I'm so proud of what you guys have been doing. I'm glad I could ride on your coattails and no. Without you on our team, seriously, without you on our team, when, when, when you spoke at that town hall last Tuesday night, I mean, I, I was almost in tears. I just thought it was beautiful what you said. Um, about how hard it is to speak up in this culture, but you have to speak the truth. And we have to model to our children that the truth always wins, that compassion always wins, kindness always wins. Um, and without you as part of this team, we would not be here. I 100% know that, 100%. Hey, that's very kind of you, but, uh, I, but I, I truly meant every word I said there that we... We need to be the change. Courage is a muscle. Let's let's all let's all step up and be a little bit that much more courageous, and we'll see change happen. And we are seeing change happen. We're so it. thank you, Lucy, so it. much for joining us on the show. And I know I know it's not going to be the last time we connect for real. For real, I want to come up to Ottawa. Oh yeah, you can come up anytime. I've never, I've never been to Ottawa. It's truth. I mean, no, uh, the nation's capital will go. Actually, I've only been to, to Washington once for conference, I mean, but come visit. Oh we, yeah, now I got, now I got an excuse. Georgetown. Got, got a, we're like up, we're like a little north of Georgetown, but yeah, I mean we're right in the city. I was born and raised here. My parents live two blocks from us. It's, it's a small town. It's like a like physically small, but uh, yeah, I we will absolutely take you up on that offer. Oh, for sure. Amazing. Yep. Doors are open. Thank you so much, Lucy. Bye, Quadro. All right, Qualcast Nation, thank you very much for the support. We'll leave links to the Urgency of Normal Toolkit. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, at Qualcast. Leave any comments at Qualcast99 at gmail.com. You know what you got to do? You got to leave that five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. Wherever you listen to podcasts helps with the visibility of the show. Go to SolvingWellness.com. If you're a healthcare provider that wants to improve, reduce burnout, that online community, sharing it together, doing our thing. 
And listen up. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We love you. We'll connect again real soon. Peace.